Our Father, we come in the name of the Son of God who has given his life for us and the one who is the author of the word which we hold in our hands, the one who expresses his love and his compassion and his mercy for us through that word and who has used the lives of men and women through several thousand years of time to teach us the truths that you want us to know so that we might live with greater joy and peace and security, knowing that the God who loves us and lives for us died for us and will bring us forever into his presence. We're so grateful, Lord, that the scripture teaches that where even as few as two or three are gathered, you are in our presence. And so we know you're here amongst us today, dwelling within each of us who is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we submit to your authority and to the teaching of your Spirit and pray that your word will be living and powerful in each of our lives and that we will apply it and that we will live it out before those around us and that our lives will be a true expression of your truth. Guide us and bless us through this morning hour in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 30. Genesis chapter 30. I'd like to read the first eight verses. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister, and she said to Jacob, Give me children, or else I die. Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from from you the fruit of the womb? She said, Here is my maid Bilhah. Go into her, that she may bear on my knees, that through her I too may have children. So she gave him her maid Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me, and has indeed heard my voice, and has given me a son. Therefore she named him Dan. And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. So Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and I have indeed prevailed. And she named him Naphtali. Last week we covered the final uh, portion of chapter 29. And, of course, we remember that uh, Jacob, it, when he arrived first in Paden Aram, his first encounter with the whole family was with Rachel. And obviously he was intrigued with her from the very beginning. And as he lived in the household there for the first month or so, and Laban finally said, look, you shouldn't just live here and work uh, for nothing. I will give you a wage. Name your wage. And so Jacob named the wage. He said, I will work seven years for the hand of your youngest daughter, Rachel. And the scripture tells us that the, the years went by as if they were a few days. And then, of course, we remember the wedding. It didn't turn out the way Jack, Jacob expected uh, because at the last minute, Laban traded daughters and he gave the eldest daughter to Jacob unbeknownst to him because it was at night. And in the morning, he discovered that he had consummated 
a marriage relationship with a woman he was not in love with, that is Leah, the elder daughter. And Jacob was, to say the least, disturbed with the situation. And he vented his wrath on Laban, which is where it ought to have been focused. Laban, though, forever the bargainer, said, look, I will give you the lady that you want. I will give you Rachel also, if you will agree to work another seven years. And so, what did he do? He said, as soon as this week, the week that is committed, literally seven days, uh, is committed to Leah, the, the honeymoon, if you will, as soon as that is over, then let us have another marriage ceremony, and we will give Rachel to you. And so this is the way it is. As we come into the 30th chapter, this is the situation. Rachel and Leah both are married to Jacob. Laban has given to both of his daughters a maid, a young woman to serve his daughters. And they will play a major role in this chapter. <clears throat> now, it's certain that Rachel was the primary objective of Jacob's love. And she felt, however, that the strain of remaining barren, while her sister bore four sons in a row, was too great for her. In that culture, we must remember that the bearing of a son was the greatest gift that a wife could give to her husband. Undoubtedly, Rachel had resented in the first place the fact that her sister had preceded her in the marriage bed with Jacob. This, of course, was primarily her father's doing. It wasn't Jacob's doing. Jacob wasn't guilty of arranging it this way. Her father was. But I think the resentment focused on the fact that she didn't believe that Leah was totally guiltless in this whole situa situation. Now, there's no evidence to indicate that Leah conspired with Laban, but Rachel's concern was that Leah was glad that it happened after it had happened. This at least seems to be part of the reason for her resentment. Now, Leah had borne four sons, and those sons, of course, were living in Leah's tent. And so Jacob would go there to visit his sons, and in the process, of course, he was visiting Leah's tent. This meant there was less time at Rachel's tent. And certainly this was part of Rachel's resentment also. Finally, as you can imagine, the pressure built, the pressure built, and she could take it no more. And so she blew up at Jacob, demanding that he give her a son or she will die. Those are pretty strong words when you think about it. I think she probably felt, literally felt, that she would have been better off dead than to tr go through life bearing the stigma of barrenness. Now again, when we relate that to our society, we have a hard time really grasping that because barrenness in our society is not considered to be a particular curse. In fact, some think it's a blessing, but which isn't really scriptural, but uh, anyway. Most people in this country don't live by Scripture anyway. But in that society, it was a terrible stigma. There was hardly a worse stigma that a woman should have to bear than in being barren. So I think she literally felt she would be better off dead than to live 
in this condition, particularly since her sister was so fruitful and was bearing son after son. And it seemed like she could go on forever the way it was going. I think also, in her mind, whether in reality the Scripture doesn't say, but at least in her mind, Rachel knew that Leah was mocking her. You may be the object of his love, but I am fruitful and you're barren. Now, you know, you don't actually have to see someone say that or hear someone say that or see them do anything for that kind of thing to crop up in your mind, right? And, and certainly, uh, remember, the enemy is involved in all of this. Again, let me go back and repeat a point I made, uh, year, uh, <laughs> not years ago, but months ago, uh, when we were earlier in uh, Genesis, and, and that is, this is where it is happening. The events we're reading about here are the focus of God's work on this planet and therefore of the enemy's activities. Today, the Word of God is being proclaimed all around the world. This is the Lord's Day. Of course, as the sun moves around, it's already not the Lord's Day over on the east coast of Asia, but nevertheless, uh, it's been, for the past 24 hours, the Lord's Day, and <coughs> God's people have been gathering and worshiping all over the world. And, and so Satan's forces are distributed. His minions have to travel all over the world to try to influence for evil in the different parts of the world. But the time we're talking about, the, the kingdom of hell would have focused its attention right here because there was little else to do around on planet Earth at that particular time. For one thing, the population of the Earth was probably just a teeny, teeny, almost infinitesimal fraction compared to what it is today. In the days of Christ, the, it's estimated that the population of the world was no greater than that of the United States today. I mean, take the United States population and distribute it around the world. Some people like to do that. And, and, and you find out a relatively thin population. Go back to this time, which is 2,000 years before that, and we're probably talking about maybe 100 million people living all over the planet. So, uh, you, you know, there were enough demons around to gang up several probably per person. But here is the focus, and so we have to remember this is a spiritual warfare that's going on here. And the enemy is putting vile thoughts in people's minds and, and, and thoughts that uh, are not of God and may not even have been true in the slightest way. Well, ultimately, uh, Jacob tired of Rachel's complaints, her jealousy, and ever nagging, and so he finally lashes out at her in anger. The scripture says in the second verse, Jacob's anger burned against Rachel. Now remember, she is his dearest. She is the object of, the primary object of his love, and yet it says his anger burned against her. Am I in the place of God? Both he and she, particularly he, knew enough that God was in control. God was, is the one who brings life into existence. And so his question is accurate. In effect, he's saying, is your barrenness my fault? How can that be? Leah has borne four sons of me. Thus, it's not my fault you're barren. God has chosen for some reason to withhold children from you. And I don't know that reason. 
Now we have to realize that in the early days of history, people didn't understand conception and they didn't understand that, you know, the male can be as infertile as well as the, as the female. And uh, so generally speaking, if a woman had no children, it was almost always considered to be her fault, regardless of her husband. Uh, but in this case, whatever they, th they thought, at least that couldn't have been a reason if they had thought that because Leah had borne four sons by him. Now, Rachel could have sought God here. She could have gone before God and asked that God might give her children. Now, there's no direct statement that Leah did this in the previous chapter, but the scripture does say in verse 31 of chapter 29 that the Lord saw Le that Leah was unloved and he opened her womb. And you'll notice that it says when she bore a son, she named him Reuben because the Lord has seen my affliction. The Lord has seen my affliction. This might imply that she did seek the Lord even though the scripture doesn't say that she did. Whatever is the case, Rachel took matters into her own hands. Now, she did have an example for this, and that was her great aunt Sarah. What did Sarah do when years passed and the promised son didn't come? Sarah finally said one day, Abraham, take my maid, Hagar, and go into her and see if God will not provide us the son that way. And so Rachel reverts to this practice. And, of course, Sarah, great godly Sarah, uh, is her example in this. And so she chooses surrogacy. I'm sure that Sarah, at the time that the activity took place and that she gave Hagar to Abraham, didn't think about posterity, that her act could be a bad example. But you and I have to remember all the time that our actions can be bad examples to our children, to our grandchildren. Hopefully, we always remember to try to do those things which are good examples, but we have to also remember that in that moment of unawareness, we could do something that would be a very, very poor example and that their children might later use as an excuse to do something that was not right. Sarah had given Abraham his, her handmaid, so Rachel gives to uh, Jacob her handmaid, Bilhah. At this point, Jacob could have and should have asserted his spiritual authority as spiritual head of this home. He had a good example to follow. And that was his father. Believe it or not, let me just read the verse back in Genesis chapter 25, verse 21. This is after Rebekah is barren for 20 years, okay? And Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Did Jacob have a good example? He had a wonderful example. What was the problem when, when Rebecca was barren? Well, they certainly didn't know what the problem was. But Isaac went before God and he interceded on behalf of his wife and the Lord heard. 
and she became fertile and was able to become pregnant. Jacob could have done the same thing. He could have said, no, 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 this is... Not. Look what happened when Abraham and Sarah did this. We've got Ishmael out there. We, we don't want this. Let's don't do this. Remember what my father did. He prayed, let me pray for you that you might bear. Well, he should have prayed for his wife and with his wife that God might remove her barrenness and heal her body. One of the most important things, I think, that comes out of Scripture through examples like this is the critical nature of prayer, first of all, and then of prayer between husband and wife and prayer by husband and wife with each other and for each other. I think this is absolutely essential. We cannot live the Christian life as it was intended to be lived if we neglect that, if we are married, obviously. It is, it is absolutely vital because it not only changes how God works through us as a couple, but it changes our attitude towards each other. It's pretty hard to have bad thoughts and ill feelings towards someone for whom you are praying every day intensely and with great concern. And of course, that is one of the many values of prayer. I think not just in crises. Now, quite often, that's what gets you going in the first place. Some crisis comes along, and so we decide to pray. And that's fine. God uses crisis to change our lives all the time spiritually. It's the old two-before approach, right? Uh, sometimes we don't hear until we get a good whack upside the head. And, and then we pay attention. And if that's how God, what God has to do to get us going on a program, that's fine. That's really how we, my wife and I, got started on really praying together as we ought because the, the two-by-four came along. And, and sometimes that's what it takes. But hopefully, we can learn else otherwise and that this would be something that we do as a couple on a regular basis because prayer is a powerful force. Really, there is no more powerful thing that you and I can do than pray. Prayer is more important than the preaching of the Word because the preaching of the Word has got to be empowered by prayer or it falls on deaf ears. Prayer is sort of like the plowing of the ground. If you don't plow the ground, you can sow the seed till you're blue in the face and it isn't going to happen. Now, in Rebecca's case, how long did barrenness last? She was barren for 20 years before she gave birth to Esau and Jacob. Now, Rachel hasn't even been barren half that long. Maybe about half that long, possibly 10 years she has been barren. But you see, her impatience was aggravated by the fact that her sister kept bearing. Now, of course, in Rebecca's case, there was no other woman, thank the Lord. And in Sarah's case, there was no other woman either until she gave him Hagar, and then there were all kinds of problems. But in this case, she had her sister, of whom she was already jealous, constantly reproducing and making her barrenness look all the more desolate and impossible. You just have to literally, when you read through these passages, put yourself into the sandals of the person and feel what they felt and get a sense of how hopeless her situation must have seemed to her. And then you can understand a little bit more why she did what she did. Not that it makes it right. 
Well, rather than following his father's example, Jacob followed his grandfather's example and took Bilhah as his third wife. Actually, more technically, she was a concubine because although there was an official uh, agreement here, she would not stand in the same place that's, that Rachel and, and, and Leah would stand in relationship to Jacob. Her children would technically be Rachel's, at least legally before the law, and Zilpah's would be Leah's. But uh, anyway, there, there was a legal arrangement here uh, for him to go into her. Now, what about Bilhah? Ever think about her? What about this lady? She is Rachel's handmaid. Had she ever dreamed that she be forced, in effect, to be a, a kind of a secondary wife to her master, Jacob? She had no say in the matter. Rachel didn't go to her and say, Bilhah, what do you think about this particular arrangement? No, because that wasn't Bilhah's right to have that. She was, in effect, a slave. And so she had to do what her master and mistress agreed that she would do, whatever her attitude was about it. What, what were her hopes as a young lady? Did she hope one day to be married, to have her own husband and have her own family and have her own tent? Well, if she were literally a slave, that probably would have been a, a, a far-off dream that most likely wouldn't have occurred except possibly she could have married someone within the confines of, of Jacob's household. I think she certainly would rather bear children by her master than to be barren and childless throughout her life. She apparently conceived right away and bore a son. Like Leah, Rachel, Rachel named the son according to the circumstances. She felt that God had wisely judged the situation and given Rachel a son through Bilhah. So she names him Dan. From the verb to judge, so, which is D-I-N, transliterated in English. And, and so the literal, literal translation of the way the Hebrew is written here is Dan, D-A-N, here, which means judge. Momentarily, Rachel felt that justice had been done and she had been vindicated because now she had a son, sort of. <laughs> At least we would say, sort of. Let's, let's stop for a minute and look at this whole concept of handmaids. It's very probable that the practice of a wealthy father giving to his daughter at the time of marriage the present of a young, healthy, unmarried maid may have been for the very purpose of preventing the stigma of barrenness as it is applied here. In other words, she may have been given originally with that intent as a backup in the case that either Rachel or Leah was infertile. We don't know, but that seems to be very, very possible because a father, like a husband, does not want his daughter 
to have the cross of barrenness to bear throughout her life. And so this is a way to avoid that. Even though technically the child wasn't born from her body, legally before the law, in the sense of inheritance, in the sense of name, she was his son. I mean, <laughs> he was her son. Yes. Now, the legal practice is actually explained, not explained, but at least mentioned to us in verse 3 there of chapter 30, where we read, She said, Here is my maid Bilhah. Go into her that she may bear on my knees, that through her I too may have children. That she may bear on my knees is the expression of the legal conditions that brought about this surrogacy or allowed the surrogacy to accomplish its purpose. This apparently means, and best as can be discovered, that at the moment of birth, Bilhah would have either given birth into Rachel's lap or while sitting on uh, Rachel's legs that the birth would have occurred in that way. And that process thereby uh, symbolically indicated Rachel's giving birth, although it wasn't physically, literally, her giving birth. And this made the whole thing legal and uh, stood before the law, and that child could inherit from, therefore, uh, Jacob and Rachel and not be considered the son of Bilhah. That is not to say that Bilhah would not nurture this child. She certainly would. She would have to nurse the child and care for the child. And so obviously the child would have that closeness with Bilhah. But all the time as he grew up, he would have to be reminded of the fact that literally he was Jacob's by Rachel legally. Not literally, but legally. Uh, and so Bilhah would always play that sort of a nebulous role in there of being mama but not mama, if you will. I think back of the story of Abraham. Abraham went into Hagar. Hagar gave birth to Ishmael. Did Hagar give birth to any other children? Scripture does not say that she did, which seems to indicate that it was a one-time affair between Abraham and Hagar. I don't mean necessarily that they had sexual relations only one time, but at least to the point of her becoming pregnant, however long that took. There seems to be no indication that there were any further sexual relationships between Abraham and Hagar. But look at this situation here. Jacob obviously continued to have this relationship with Bilhah and to claim such rights because she becomes pregnant a second time and bears a second son. Now, Rachel is not dismayed by this. In, in fact, Rachel is delighted by it because, again, she bears on Rachel's knee, so to speak. And Rachel claims this one also. And so she names him Naphtali from the verb to twist, meaning wrestling. I have wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. Do you get a feeling that there's a kind of a hard relationship here between Rachel and Leah? I have wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. I mean, the feeling here is not that I'm just having a little bit of a problem with her. It's, it's, a, it's a titanic wrestling match here between these two ladies. And I have prevailed. 
the name thus, all the time they'd be saying, wrestling come here, wrestling do this, wrestling do that. And every time his name would be mentioned, anybody who was thinking would remember, ah yes, the one who represents the clash between these two sisters. Reminding everyone continuously of their struggle for Jacob's love. This whole thing's a tragedy. I hope you see that as we go through it. Verse 9. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took her maid Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, How fortunate! So she named him Gad. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for, a for, a woman, for women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. Leah bore four sons, and the implication is that they came one right after the other as quickly as it was physically possible for her to conceive uh, after the previous birth. And so we're probably talking about, let's, you know, giving the considerations of uh, bodies being in better condition to uh, 4,000 years ago than they are now because of the devolution of the human race over the years producing people today who are not as physically strong and, and capable as they were 4,000 years ago. Given the fact that the processes probably worked more the way they were supposed to in those days, we, we could probably say that she gave birth approximately at two-year intervals. Okay, by the time the birth and and, and the lactation and all that that goes on, we're, we're talking about probably two-year intervals. So after approximately this period of six or seven years, Leah stops bearing for a while. And it seems to be pretty clear that it's God who, who intervenes here. Just kind of shuts it off. Now, the fact that she stopped bearing and that this was a problem implies that, there, that it was still possible, that is, Jacob was still going to Leah and spending time with her, but she was not able to conceive. Now, actually, she should have been happy, right? She had given him four sons. How many sons did Sarah give to Abraham? One, right? How many sons did Rebekah give to Isaac? Two, right? She has given four. She should be delighted. And really, there probably would not have been any problem with this. I mean, I can't imagine in those days, other than the joy of having given birth to another son, I can't imagine that pregnancy was a particularly delightful condition. I don't think it was much more delightful in those days than it is for most today. So, what was the problem here? Well, the problem was her sister... There was this rivalry for Jacob's love. And the more sons she bore, the greater was her hope that Jacob would love her. But he still was pouring more affection and more time into Rachel. She had borne these four sons. And she got a little bit more attention from him because he came around to see the boys. But he was still putting his, the bulk of his attention and the bulk of his time into Rachel. And so that was the driving force here. That's what made her feel bad 
that she was not able to continue to bear. I mean, was there an ultimate number that she could have borne? In her own mind, that is, that would have made Jacob love her more? You know, 20? <laughs> you know, who knows? But she was fearful that Jacob might tire of coming to her tent when there was no fruit. And so she decides to copy Rachel, take a book, page out of Rachel's book, and to give Jacob her maid also. <coughs> they truly believed that to have many sons was a great honor. But you know, there's a whole lot more going on here than just honoring Jacob with sons. There is something behind that that's going on in this passage. And that is you have two insecure ladies who are seeking love and esteem, which they so desperately need. That's really the driving force here. <coughs> they desperately needed Jacob's undivided attention, really. But they weren't getting it, and especially was Leah not getting it. This didn't, you know, she couldn't just wash it all away and say, I don't need the drip anyway, you know. I'll just go about my way and raise my four sons. I mean, that's just not human nature. It's just not the way we're made. Now, in marriage, as God intended it to be, this kind of insecurity should not last long, should not even exist in the first place. Even through the test of barrenness or, or some other crisis like this, God made the man and the woman to be complementary, to complement one another. Whatever it is the man needs, the woman has to provide. And that's not just physically. We're talking about emotionally. God made it that way. God knew what he was doing. And she had a desperate need, Leah. And, and Jacob was the only one who could meet that need, but he wasn't doing it. And so this was a, a driving power behind her desire to try to, to have more sons and maybe earn what she so desperately wanted and needed from her husband. Well, for Jacob's part here, he accepts Leah's reasoning, whatever it is here. Well, you know, I'm not bearing anymore, so why don't you uh, take Zilpah and uh, I'll raise sons through, through Zilpah. Well, Jacob's blown it once. He might as well blow it twice, right? At least uh, I, I, don't, I don't think he really viewed it as blowing it, but that's what he's doing. He's not following God's clear direction in this matter. Uh, so he takes a fourth wife, or a second concubine, if you will. So now there are not just two ladies, or three, there are four ladies in his life. True, the two handmaids are secondary, but hey, they're taking away from him a certain measure of emotional strength. Well, as hoped, the scripture teaches, tells us here that Zilpah soon bore a son, and Leah was ecstatic. She named him Gad, which means good fortune. Now, what most of us don't realize is that Gad was the name of a Babylonian god. The Babylonian god of fortune was called Gad. 
He gads, right? <laughs> Isn't it interesting how many of our funny little expressions? It's like saying, by Jove. You know, what we're saying is, by Jupiter, the god of the Greeks. He gads, the god of the Babylonians. I mean, there are a lot of our expressions that really are based back in paganism. We don't even, we're calling on the gods <laughs> when we do that so often. Pagan gods, of course. I, I don't think Leah, in her mind, though, was associating this son with that god. I think she is simply associating this good fortune with the blessing of Jehovah, of Yahweh, the god that she knew at least to some extent. That was the source, really, of, uh, of her calling him this, not, not the name of the god, of the pagan god. There are others, by the way, in Scripture who were great heroes who had uh, names of pagan gods, you know, like Zerubbabel and, and the names that were given to uh, Daniel, um, Azariah, Mishael, and, 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 and the other guy. I've forgotten his Hebrew name. We remember him as, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, those were pagan names. Uh, and so it was Belteshazzar, which was given to Daniel by the Babylonian king. But that doesn't mean that they're evil people simply because they've been given a name of a pagan god. Well, like Bilhah, Zilpah had no choice in the matter. It wasn't like, Zilpah, would you like to marry Jacob too? <laughs> Might as well, everybody else is doing it. <laughs> no. no. I, the, the, she was not questioned about this whole thing. This was simply expected of her. And again, was, was this the shattering of any dream she might have had? Or, or was this something that she was glad for? Well, we don't know. The scripture does not tell us. It's just as if she were almost a non-entity as we uh, look at it through here. Just a biological entity and, and that's all, which she wasn't. You know, we just have to, as we look at these things, remember these were human beings with all the emotions and all the needs that we have. I mean, we're talking about a complicated picture here. I mean, whatever, whatever Jacob understood about this whole thing, he was in a mess. It may not have been as complicated as a mess as it might be today. Of course, today, of course, it would be illegal. But, and it wasn't illegal in his day. And, and, and there was no, you know, feminist movement in his day. And, and there were no books out teaching us about how we're supposed to be as husbands and wives. And so... Certainly, that kind of awareness may not have been there. Uh, but certainly, as time passed, he must have recognized to some extent that this was not a pleasant situation that he was in. Well, Zilpah bore a second son, again indicating that Jacob considered her as uh, his right to uh, continue to have sexual relations with, and so he did. And a second son was born apparently as soon as physically possible, of Zilpah. Leah, Leah is overjoyed again. And so she names him Asher. Happy. Happy. It's kind of a nice name for a kid, really, when you think about it. Happy. It's better than, you know, uh, naming the kid uh, Dopey or, <laughs> or some other terms like we often associate with the name Happy. <laughs> She was happy because in spite of the fact that she had her husband only through her father's trickery, 
only because of her father's uh, uh, deceit was she even married to Jacob. But she now hoped that she would be more respected as a mother and a blessing to her husband as the children, the sons, were born. Verse 14. Now in the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went out and found mandrakes in the field. He brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Can you see the smoke rising from verse 15? Then she, that is Leah, said to her, Rachel, Is it a small matter for you to take my husband? And you would... And you would take my son's mandrakes also. So Rachel said, Therefore he may lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came in from the field in the evening, then Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. Verse 17, And God gave heed to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my maid to my husband. So she named him Issachar. And Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Jacob. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulon. And afterward, she bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Then the Lord remembered Rachel, and God gave heed to her and opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord give me another son. As you read through Scripture... I'm sure that maybe the first time you read through Scripture, you may have been amazed by the number of bald passages in Scripture. God's not one for velvet gloves. God's not one to cover everything up so that you don't really see what's going on. God goes in there with the scalpel and lays it open that we might see the truth. If you will, God tells it like it was. He does not gloss over the follies of his people. You know, there's a passage in Scripture which says, be sure your sin will find you out. Now, that doesn't always mean that sin's going to be put on the billboard someplace. But it means God's going to convict in our own hearts and God's going to work. And sometimes we're touched in many ways. God wants us to understand things that... Well, I mean, look at this passage here. Mandrakes. <laughs> uh, were mandrakes really, truly something that helped? No. But does God cover that up? No. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that it's true, right? The Bible tells us many things that are false. Now, God is not teaching us false things. He's simply teaching us what people falsely believed and what the devil falsely taught, right? The Bible is true from one end to the other. It's truth. But it also says in Psalms, there is no God. But then it prefaces it by saying, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. 
Well, that's a true statement. But those few words, there is no God, is a false statement. That's what I'm trying to say. Mandrakes don't mean anything. But they thought they did. The people of that day believed that mandrakes were an aphrodisiac. In the Hebrew, the word for the plant is duday, which comes from the root word meaning love. So it was a plant that would produce the fruit of love. This was the idea. Now, today there is no certainty as to what the plant was that is being referred to in this passage. There are various guesses. There, uh, most scholars <coughs> believe that it's a particular plant, a member of the nightshade family, which in Europe is called the love apple. But is this the same herb? Well, there's no certainty about that at all. In fact, there's, well, I'll read a, read a passage uh, in a few moments that seems to indicate that it probably wasn't that particular herb. But if it were, this particular plant has a long taproot and it has orange berries that grow on it. And they're bright, shiny little berries. Actually, not little, about the size of cherry tomatoes. And uh, very, very attractive. But that that root or that those berries do anything for one in an aphrodisiac uh, manner has absolutely no scientific support. Now, the plant flowered and fruited during the springtime, which, of course, is traditionally the season of fertility. And so that probably added to the belief. Now, the, f the, the fruit and the roots of this particular plant do have a cathartic and a narcotic impact, but there's nothing to indicate that they have any qualities of an aphrodisiac. Now, from this passage, it seems that the plant must be relatively rare, right? It wasn't exactly growing around the tents all around the place because Reuben brings it in and, and Rachel says, whoa, where'd you get those? I haven't seen those in a long time. I'd like some, you know. Uh, obviously, it was something that was not commonly found. So, when Reuben brought them in, they became a much sought-after item. Now, why did Reuben bring them in? Did you ever think about that? Why did Reuben bring this plant in? Well, let's think about Reuben for a minute. He's just a kid. He may have been 10-ish by this particular time, maybe 12, but, but somewhere in there. You know, the, the age when young boys are out into everything, right, and trying to discover and, and explore, not that they don't do that sooner, but uh, certainly at this particular time. And so it could be he just found this plant. He, it was unusual. He didn't remember ever seeing it before. So he pulls the thing up and brings it in because he wants to ask his mother whether these luscious little fruits are edible. Now, that could be a reason. It's possible that she had told him or shown him and said, be on the lookout for this, and if you ever see it, bring it to me. Now, that's a possibility uh, also. So whatever was the reason behind this, he brought this mandrake to his mother. Well, as he's bringing, he's dragging this stuff in here. Why, uh, Rachel spies it. And Reuben's Leah's son, so she goes to Leah and says, uh, would you share those with me? Well, as I noted when you read that verse, Leah allowed a little bit of her true feelings to emerge here in her response to Rachel. Any sisterly love that these two ladies may have had 
is long gone. And they have virtually nothing kind to say to one another because of this intense competition for Jacob's love. This is not God's plan. If we ever need an illustration that bigamy and polygamy are not right, this is a very good one. I mean, everybody here is unhappy, particularly the ladies. Well, Rachel had been experiencing most of Jacob's attention, so what does she need Mandrake for? Well, it also was believed to have another quality, and that is the quality of inducing fertility. So in her case, she wanted it to produce fertility. And Leah wanted it, of course, to attract Jacob. So she makes a bargain. Lots of bargains in this passage, aren't there? I mean, in this book of Genesis, lots of bargains. So Rachel says, I'll make you a deal, a deal you can't resist. You give me some of your mandrakes, and you can have, what's his name tonight? You can have Jacob tonight. Rachel's desire here is so great. Rachel wanted to try anything and everything so that she might bear a son. She wanted to be a worthy wife and to give to the man she loved, the son he so desperately wanted. Oh, he already had eight sons. Or, yeah, eight. Eight up to this point. He already had eight sons. So what's the big deal? He had yet to have a son by his beloved. And we know, of course, don't we, of the story of Joseph, how Jacob reacted to Joseph. He unwisely demonstrated his great love for Joseph to the exclusion, almost, of the other boys. So you can understand how intensely desired this son was. And Rachel wanted so desperately to give him that son. And so she will, was willing to try anything and even let her hated sister have her husband that night if it would help in the long run. Mandrakes play an important role in this narrative, but you know the scripture doesn't talk about them at all except in one other passage in the Song of Solomon. Let me just read those verses to you here for a moment, because actually the, these verses seem, one of the verses anyway, uh, seem to indicate that the plant wasn't the very plant I have mentioned. At least some feel that. In, in Song of Solomon 7.10, I am my beloved, beloved's, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the country. Let us spend night in the villages. Let us rise early and go to the vineyards. Let us see whether the vine has budded and its blossoms have opened and whether the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes have given forth fragrance. And over our doors are the, our choice fruits, both old and new, which I have saved up for you, my beloved. Now that passage, the last verse, seems to indicate two things. First of all, that the mandrake was a plant, a scented plant. And secondly, hanging it over the door with its fruits there had some kind of a like hanging a horseshoe over the door effect, you know, that, or the mistletoe or something, you know. 
seems to be the concept. And it's the fact that the references to the fragrance here that many feel that it couldn't, that probably isn't that nightshade plant because that has basically no fragrance to it at all. So, you know, what plant was it? That's why I say they don't really know today what plant it was for sure. But certainly it was a very desired plant. Was Jacob flattered by all this bargaining going on for him? Well, certainly in the flesh he must have been. But I think verse 16 of this passage is such a sad, sad statement. When Jacob came in from the field in the evening, then Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. This expresses the tragedy of this woman's life. I've ha she had to hire her own husband to spend the night with her. And this, of course, is a sad, sad commentary on polygamy. If you saw that film shown in church last Sunday, and they kind of made a joke about uh, the uh, Muslims' four wives, it isn't funny. I mean, in the situation, you know, there was humor to it, but uh, it is not a good situation. It's a bad situation. And it's bad not only for the wives, but for the husband too, even if the culture is accustomed to it. It doesn't change basic human nature. There is a basic need that's been inbuilt into the human being that isn't negated or wiped out because the culture accepts something else. It's still there. And the pain is still there. And there probably is not, there probably are not many other cultures in this world <coughs> where women suffer more pain than they do in the Muslim religion. Where they're treated almost as non-entities. You know, the Muslim con conception of heaven is where a man is there enjoying all the pleasures of heaven, including the service of many women. And that's what women are to do in heaven, serve the men in every sense of the word. Fanning them, bringing them lemonade, you know, anything. They... If I were a woman, I'd tell Muhammad to take it and put it someplace because I sure wouldn't want to have anything to do with his religion. Now, had Leah taken any of the mandrakes herself? Scripture doesn't say. But verse 17 is quite plain. The mandrakes had absolutely nothing to do with Leah becoming pregnant. Again, verse 17 says, And God gave heed to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. You see, we see behind the scenes. Whatever she did, Whatever she thought, God was the one who brought it about. And she gave birth to a fifth son. But she properly gives God the credit. God has given me my wages. The credit is proper, but the reason for the credit is wrong. What does she say? God has given me my wages because I gave my maid to my husband. Huh. Because I violated God's commandment, he's blessed me and given me another son, right? That's in effect what she's saying. She's attributing God's favor to the result uh, of her, to the fact that she had given her maid to Jacob. 
she obviously did not understand that God's favor is what? Unmerited. You and I cannot do anything to earn God's favor. That's the meaning of grace. And it cannot be earned by anything we do or any means by which we might try to purchase it. As a loving father, God wants to give good gifts to every single one of us. But it is our disobedience and our lack of faith that sometimes frustrates God from being able to give those gifts to us. And every single one of us in this room stands guilty of that. God heard Leah's heart cry, and so he gave her another son, but not because she gave Zilpah to Jacob. Now, she may have viewed that as an act of generosity, but from the beginning, God had said, one man, one woman, cleaving together for all of life. She named her fifth son Issachar. Think about it. All the rest of her life, little Issachar is going to be running around, and his name meant my hire. Kind of tragic. Well, we don't have time to finish this particular 